Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kimaladun. Today is a talk from Colin Woodard at the Maine Conservation Voters 20th Annual Evening for the Environment. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Well, thank you to MCA and MCV for having me and to, for all of you for coming tonight and supporting this uh, important set of issues. As mentioned, I'll be talking this evening about some of the foundational characteristics of the United States. Characteristics that have always made it hard for us to uh, maintain a semblance of national unity and also about the forces that have managed to hold us together in the past. About the colossal struggle that competing force, that between the competing stories of American nationhood that have defined so much of our history and upon which any hope for environmental justice and lasting environmental progress depends. Much of what I'll say draws from my most recent book, Union, which uh, tracks the long fight, let's advance this, which tracks the long fight over the centuries between competing national narratives, a battle for the soul of the nation that continues to this day. But to understand the stakes and to set the stage, a few words on a previous book, American Nations. Now, how many of you have read this book? Oh, a good number of you, a good number of you, very good, very good. Well, for those who haven't, um, it argues that there's never been one America, but several Americas, and that there are 11 today most tracing their way back to the differences between the rival regional cultures, the rival colonial projects that formed on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's now the United States. Those projects had different and distinct religious and ethnographic and religious characteristics, different ideas about who they were and where they were going, what they celebrated, what values they held, all the elements of what anthropologists would call culture. These projects were like you know, the Puritan-founded New England and its extensions, right? A people who believed that they were in a covenanted relationship with a Calvinist God to do particular things in the world, which was an enormous contrast from their neighbors in the Dutch-settled area around New York City, trying to create a Haniastic-style global trading city-state where moral issues weren't quite as big an issue, or the lesser sons of English gentry going into the Chesapeake country to try to reestablish and rebuild the manorial system of the English countryside they'd left behind, like some kind of 17th century Lord Grantham's and their Downton Abbeys, or the Scots-Irish settled backcountry, people from the war-torn borderlands of, uh, of the English marches and of Ulster uh, going with a a deep commitment to individual liberty and personal sovereignty. The Spanish settled Southwest, the Barbados English slave planters coming into the subtropical lowlands around Charleston and the lowland South, reestablishing a society um, based on oligarchic privilege, and so on and so forth. These were colonial projects that were rivals and had surprisingly little in common. In fact, they were often enemies during the colonial period, sometimes belonging, of course, to different empires like New Spain or New France, but even the British ones aligned on opposite sides of all of the great conflicts that came up of the English Civil War of the 1640s, of the Glorious Revolution of 1688 to 89. They had their own intercolonial wars and conflicts. So you've got to ask yourself, well, how did they wind up together? They wound up together through an accident of history. 
They came together to face off a common threat, a change in British imperial policy in the 1770s that threatened to destroy the relative autonomy of each of their own individual political and social systems. And to stave off this conforming threat coming out of London, a bunch of them gathered together and formed a joint military command in the form of the Continental Army, a treaty organization to try to organize and supply it in the form of the Continental Congress, which had to move around its place of meeting uh, throughout, you know, as the battle line shifted from one place to another. And miraculously, this ad hoc coalition won. And they found themselves inside something called the United States. But nobody knew exactly what that was. So the fact is the United States came into being as a contractual agreement, a means to an end initially for the parties involved. Nobody at the time thought that they had created a nation state in the sense that Holland or Prussia or post-revolutionary France were, and that the German romantic thinkers hoped that the little micro-states of the German Confederation might one day become. Its people lacked a shared history religion, or ethnicity. They didn't speak a unique language all their own. They hadn't occupied the continent long enough to have a sense of dwelling in some mythic homeland since time immemorial. And they'd killed or pushed out many of the people who could make such a claim in living memory. They lacked a shared political heritage apart from the imperial ties they just revolted against. And they had no shared story of who they were and what their purpose was. In short, they had none of the foundations most would-be nations had to try to create a nation state. They had no story to bring and hold them together. Here, by the way, are, for those not familiar with it, are the regional cultures today mapped out at a county level. They each had exclusive settlement zones that they, that they mapped, they uh, colonized outwards, and they've left their trail and, and uh, heritage and characteristics to a great degree in the different regional cultures those colonial projects left in their stead. But I wondered, after writing American Nations, how and when did this change? Because clearly it did. At some point, these differences were papered over rhetorically by a story that convinced us that we had a shared origin story, a shared past, a common American culture, a shared sense of purpose and definition of who belonged and why, a national narrative. And I wondered who created this story and when and why? How was it disseminated? And what lessons does it have for us today when the Federation again stands in jeopardy. Such stories are required for every nation, be it Germany or France or ourselves, because as individuals, to have fealty to something as abstract as a nation, to feel that we owe it greater loyalty to, than to other nations, that we're bound to its fellow members more closely than to those who aren't members of this nation, that we might ultimately literally give our lives for it, that requires a very compelling and credible story. An idea that's evocative and feels true on some deep level that has footings in the past and gives us an answer for why we're together. Now intellectuals from Jill Lepore and Michael Lynn to David Brooks and Ross Douthat have all pointed to the need for a new US national story today or possibly a renewed one so as to provide a communal identity, incorporating an understanding of our national purpose and origins and possible future. People need such a story. And as Lepore has put it, they can get it from scholars or they can get it from demagogues, but get it, they will.
A society without a credible story, the historian William McNeil wrote 35 years ago, soon finds itself in deep trouble. For in the absence of believable myths, coherent public action becomes very difficult to improvise or to sustain. Ideas are among the most powerful forces in human society. And national narratives are among the most consequential of all ideas. But even as they're powerful, obviously they're abstractions. And in writing Union, I was also interested in just how something goes from being an idea in somebody's head to somehow get out into the zeitgeist, into the shared consciousness, and thus reshape the world. So I wanted to write and research this story biographically through the lives and actions of the people who actually came up with and fought with one another over these consequential ideas to understand their families, their childhoods, their friends and mentors, their enemies, their experiences good and bad that shaped their ideas and their ability to spread them into the world and have them take root. And so Union reads a bit like a novel with shared storylines of the key figures, parallel narratives that eventually collide. I thought this was the best way to tell the story just sort of as a dramatic and entertaining, but more importantly, it's the best way to research and understand the story, to follow the material and understand how these ideas evolved and how they succeeded in taking root into the world. Now, the answer ended up being that the effort to create a national narrative, a mythic narrative of American unity, got underway quite early. I thought it was gonna be something after the Civil War, right? A cataclysmic struggle, everybody up in the 1860s and 1870s understood America as being separate states or regional cultures at war with one another, and that somehow in the effort to recover from that terrible conflict, that people had come up with a national narrative out of necessity to, to, to win the peace and bond people together. But what surprised me is it actually started in the 1830s in earnest when the ad hoc story that the United States had been operating under was no longer sufficient. Now that ad hoc story that had been inherited from the 1770s and through the early republic was an idea that, hey, we won against the British, right? Go us, right? And that's amazing. We had this incredible struggle, this shared victory. All right, go America. And George Washington, the leader at the time and the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the first president and the wartime leader was given almost deity-like status. And his, he had a pantheon around him like Mount Olympus and you know, Henry Knox and the Marquis de Lafayette and Alexander Hamilton and all the rest. But by the 1830s, that was starting to fall apart, in part because the generation that had fought the revolution was dying off and disappearing from the stage. It was no longer part of living memory. You go around talking to college kids now and of course none of them can remember the shock of 9-11 firsthand. It's a different experience than the, the lived memory in the beginning. But also by the 1830s, the country had started facing actual secession movements. Right? New England had tried to secede, considered it seriously during the War of 1812. Parts of Greater Appalachia in the 1790s during the Whiskey Rebellion. And there were then, more critically, growing tensions over the institution of slavery. At odds as it was with the foundational values in the Declaration of Independence, the innate equality of humans and their inalienable rights to liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness and consensual representative self-government. Slavery was not going away as the founding fathers thought it would, but was instead consolidating and in the southern region was starting to be defended as an actual good. In short, not having a story as to what the US was and how to hold it together was becoming a national security threat. A narrative that story of why we were together was needed or we would assuredly be drifting apart. 
And it turned out that there wasn't one story, there were two in competition, a battle over the soul of the nation that unfortunately continues to this day. Now those stories are in brief like this. The effort begins with this man, George Bancroft, largely forgotten today, but he was, bar none, the most famous historian of the 19th century. And he didn't just write history, he made it. As Secretary of War in the Polk administration, he issued the orders that led to the annexation of Texas. As Secretary of the Navy, he established the Naval Academy at Annapolis and gave the instructions to naval captains that caused the annexation of California. He was our ambassador to London and later to Berlin, where he became personal friends with Otto von Bismarck and was riding around the Tiergarten and horses with him. He held dinner parties and later life for presidents and story. And it came in the form of a 10-volume epic history of the United States that took him nearly a half century of his life to complete and even then only extended the narrative into the 1790s. It was in fact a prehistory of the United States of America and it made an argument we were one peoples and had been from the beginning and the argument went something like this. The US, he said, is a nation not of shared bloodlines but of shared ideals. A fusion, it represented a fusion of his cosmology and his Puritan New England background, right? The idea that God had a plan for his chosen people, an errand in the wilderness, a light on the hill, the creation of a more godly world here on earth, a people with a mission. And he combined that with what he'd learned from his very secular German mentors, the idea of Teutonic exceptionalism, that the ancient Teutons and the, the, the black forests of Germany were freedom-loving people and pass the baton, the torch of liberty onto the Anglo-Saxons when they invaded Britain. And then those Anglo-Saxons had come to the US and established the latest incarnation of the freedom-loving mission granted people out there in the world. Ideas of historicism from the Germans, right? That history has a plan, like the contrails of an airplane. If you can look back and study history carefully, you can plot where the plane is going because it's going somewhere specifically. The ideas of a national zeitgeist, that peoples have a collective consciousness that can be shaped by different ideas. And the ideas that nations are organic beings that develop their characteristics inexorably from the uh, codes inside their seeds. And in the process, he argued this, that America, was, its mission was it was charged with furthering the cause of human freedom. The ideals in the Declaration of Independence I mentioned earlier, to shape it and move it across the continent and around the world. And it could not fail, he believed, because the currents of history and the hand of God obviously wished it so. Herein in his narrative, which spread everywhere and became the subject of all discussion about what the United States was going to be, infected university curricula, the way people talked about the country, paintings that were made uh, in the capital and elsewhere, it contained in it, though, the tropes of American exceptionalism, the hubris of empire, a rational, uh, rationale for conquest that could only eventually cut against the very ideals it was meant to spread. But also, it birthed the American promise, the aspiration to create and further a free society theoretically open to all, devoted to the equality of opportunity, equality before the law, representative self-government, the pursuit of happiness and all that, the government by and for all of the people that Lincoln would later hope would not perish from the earth. But this civic national narrative was challenged from the moment it was unveiled. 
And the figure who led the charge against it was one of Bancroft's friends and colleagues, another famous man in his time who is forgotten today. This man, William Gilmore Sims. Forgotten, of course, but that would amaze people in the early 19th century because he was one of the most successful and popular and acclaimed novelists in early America in the antebellum South. A writer compared favorably often to Cooper and to Edgar Allan Poe and was the leading public intellectual bar none of the antebellum South and the ultimate Confederate man of letters. He was from Charleston and from South Carolina, though, and had very different ideas about what America or the United States should be and represent. And he immediately, when he saw what Bancroft had written and the reaction to it, countered. And he and a group of Southern intellectuals who were circled around him said, no, Jefferson was absolutely wrong when he wrote the Declaration. People are not created equal. They're highly unequal. And in fact, only a small subset of people are capable and advanced enough to have the genius to, to use the ideals and take advantage of the ideals and promise in the Declaration. And those people are the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. In fact, America, he said, was the homeland of such people, or the homelands. Each of the colonies was an Anglo-Saxon ethnostate devoted to those people, this Herrenvolk. And it was built, how could you imagine being in a country devoted to democracy that had these ideas? Well, it's because in the Deep South and in the Tidewater country, the model was a classical republicanism. A republicanism right based on and modeled on the classical republics of antiquity, on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where societies were a small um, set, elite of the population was granted the liberty or the privilege to practice democracy and subjugation and slavery were considered the natural lot of the many, a good that, only, that was required even to have a republic. That was the argument that had, the, um, had control over that part of the country and which William Gilmore Sims put forward very forcefully in his own, um, in his own works. Now this, of course, the battle between these ideas, this epic struggle dominated the 1830s and the 1840s and would lead us propelled into a civil war where 100,000 people would die. And in the process, there was a pivotal figure who emerged, the pivotal figure in our whole narrative. This man, who you should recognize and hasn't been forgotten, Frederick Douglass, right? Escaped from slavery in Maryland. Uh, came and was discovered by the early Garrisonians, the abolitionists, who saw that he had this incredible speaking ability and an unbelievable story to tell, a first-hand view of what it was like to be enslaved and the moral corruption that it tore on both uh, master and enslaved alike. And they grabbed him. They said, you're going to be our star speaker, and we're going to set you on railway tours. And they sent him all over the northern tiers of the country to um, use his oratorical power and share his story. And he ended up being an incredible writer as well. He taught himself to uh, read and write in secrecy, even though it was effectively illegal uh, in Maryland at the time to, to teach uh, enslaved people to read and write. And he used his incredible skills throughout his career. He became an international superstar, a best-selling author, one of the most famous people of that entire age. And the message that he brought in his decades-long career was essentially taking and appropriately correcting that civic national narrative that Bancroft had given the first take. The big correction being, Douglas said, these are good ideals, and you, and he was essentially speaking to white northerners at the time, you have failed them. You're betraying them every day. 
You know, I can tell you firsthand how it's been betrayed from my own experiences, but it's happening here in the North and you need to rally together because these are the promise you should have. And a promise not just for African-Americans, he defended everyone who was under attack, right? He was one of the few men who appeared at the uh, Seneca um, Convention, uh, the, the Women's Suffrage Convention. Uh, he was close friends with Susan B. Anthony. He defended Irish Americans and Catholic Americans and Chinese Americans at the different times when they were all under attack. And his argument was, you haven't achieved those ideals. Yes, there's a quest to fulfill them, but you, it's not something that's going to be inevitable, like Bancroft said. It's something we all must fight for and that we have not achieved yet. And in the process, of re-articulating that, trying to influence and prod people as the Civil War approached in the aftermath of the Civil War and the struggles over Reconstruction and the occupation of the South and the dark periods that followed thereafter, he articulated some of the civic national vision of the United States better than anyone has before or since. He personally went down and influenced Lincoln when Washington, D.C. was surrounded on three sides by Confederate troops and him being captured would mean a death sentence. He went multiple times to the White House and helped convince Lincoln to finally insert in his famous address at Gettysburg in the middle of the war in 1863 that commitment for the first time committing the United States in its struggle and as official policy to the idea that it was trying to protect that unfilled promise in the Declaration. But it's often said that the South lost the war, but then won the peace. And that victory was crowned by the ascension of this man, Woodrow Wilson. Now we think of Woodrow Wilson, right, as the governor of New Jersey and you know, the president of an Ivy League institution at Princeton, but Wilson was actually from the Deep South. He was raised in Augusta, Georgia, in the ashes of the Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina, the South Carolinian capital that had been burned by Sherman. He was a Deep Southerner through and through and the first Deep Southerner to ascend to the presidency. His father, had been one of the most important intellectuals in the Confederacy. He had been the leading light of the Confederate Presbyterian Church, a um, reputation built upon an essay that he uh, was incredibly popular in the antebellum South, arguing that slavery was ordained by God. An outrageous racist of the most rough hot sod short, who Woodrow Wilson worshipped throughout his life and through his memoirs and saw as a role model. And he carried the values that were brought with him and he grew up with, with his father and in those terrains, with him into his academic career, into the academic articles he wrote, into the histories he wrote, which cast Reconstruction and the effort, uh, the short-lived uh, effort to ensure the political emancipation of African Americans in the former Confederacy, that that had been a terrible thing and obviously been backwards. He um, personally, um, when he finally uh, reached um, the presidency, that was the crowning moment. He brought in a Dixie cabinet for the first time and personally set forward and segregated the federal government, the union government that had won the Civil War. He personally intervened to block the anti-racism provisions introduced by Japan at the League of Nations uh, from going forward. He aided in the movement that led to the passage of the 1924 Immigration Act with its explicitly stated mission to restrict immigration so as to maintain the Anglo-Saxon character of the United States. He presided over the zenith of Jim Crow laws and the construction of many of the Confederate monuments that were now tearing down. And he backed birth of a nation, right? 
the first Hollywood blockbuster film, right? Epic film and multiple reels. That would, the guy who, D.W. Uh, Griffith, who created the film, discovered Hollywood and founded Hollywood in the process of making this film. Technically, no one had seen anything like it. But it was a film where the plot was the celebration of the Ku Klux Klan's violent terrorist campaign to end the political emancipation of African Americans in the South. They were the heroes of the film. That was the message, right? A message of inequality and white supremacy was key to it. Now this was controversial even at the time in 1915. There were massive protests against it. It was considered an outrage in Boston and in New York and elsewhere. Like a Black Lives Matter-like protest. They were gonna block the movie from being shown. Because remember, this is at a time when the Supreme Court had yet to rule that artistic productions are protected speech under the First Amendment. So theatrical productions and films were often censored by mayors and governors if they were considered contrary to public morals. And that's exactly what the activists wanted to have happen. And this was going to be a disaster for D.W. Griffith and his co-producer, Thomas Dixon Jr., who'd written the book upon which it was based, The Klansman. And if the movie didn't show, it had a massive multi-gazillion dollar budget, if it didn't show in the major markets like Boston and New York, they would go bankrupt and it would be terrible. What did we do? They threw a Hail Mary pass. Thomas Dixon Jr. went to his good friend and graduate school classmate, Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, and asked him for help. And Wilson showed the film in the White House to his cabinet. And news items went out the next day and then uh, Thomas Dixon Jr. ran across the street and you know, found the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice White, and convinced him to show it in the, one of the biggest ballrooms in DC to the other Supreme Court justices and the leaders of Congress. And this transformed, it made it impossible for governors and mayors to restrict the film when it was getting the uh, implicit endorsement of the entire leadership in Washington, DC. And as a result, this film was used as, uh, as a narrative and a recruiting tool for the creation and founding of a second Ku Klux Klan that rose in the 1920s and 1930s to have more than two million members. What I'm saying is this was the moment when one of these two national narratives triumphed across the Federation, across the regional culture, and it was not the better of the two, right? It was a triumph of an ethno-national and white supremacist one. And that's why these forces, the danger, the power that is unleashed when these are tapped on are so consequential because unfortunately it goes as deep as our good narrative of being committed to ideals. They've been locked in battle throughout our history from the beginning. But fortunately this ethno-national triumph was short-lived. The civic nationalist narrative dethroned it in the uh, 20th century. Mass conscription in both world wars produced multi-ethnic units and multi-racial armies whose members felt that they'd earned rights to full citizenship and consecrated them with blood sacrifices. African-American veterans of these wars formed the backbone of resistance that culminated in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which challenged the apartheid systems of the South. The Cold War compelled federal officials simultaneously to support this movement at critical junctures. This was because the conflict with the Soviet Union had become in many respects a proxy war in what was then called the Third World for the hearts and minds of essentially non-white populations. And the Soviets could accurately and effectively tell these people in these wars for hearts and minds, hey, if you or your ambassadors and diplomats try to travel in any of three directions from Washington, D.C., they'll be denied access to beaches 
to restrooms, to restaurants and hotels, even the hotels hosting the conferences they've been invited to. They'll be treated as second-class citizens, as racially inferior. These are enormous scandals that were happening regularly to, for the, in, the diplomats of many of the newly independent states in the post-colonial period. And this, Presidents Truman and Eisenhower, and most certainly JFK and LBJ, realized was a national security weakness in this Manichaean struggle in the Cold War that could not stand. And so, the civil rights movement toppled Southern apartheid and challenged Northern racism. The feminist movement demanded social and professional and sexual equality for a gender that comprised the majority of the population. Gays and lesbians fought the police in discriminatory ordinances. Elite colleges began partially dismantling their old boys' networks, and public universities rapidly expanded to increase educational opportunities. Congress passed a new immigration law in 1964, that repealed ethno-national quotas, reopening America's gates to humanity at large. And a new generation of historians challenged the neo-Confederate narrative, Woodrow Wilson and others, that had dominated scholastic textbooks by then for half a century while dispelling the innocence of the American colonization of the continent. And so, for the first time, the civic national narrative became dominant and to the fore. America became a liberal democracy, small l, small d, for the first time in that era. And for my generation, I'm a Gen Xer, it seemed permanent, right? That the white supremacist model had been toppled forever when we were children or before. We'd elected an African-American president twice, after all. But of course, ethno-nationalism had not been vanquished. And I believe it's essential for the United States' survival that it is, because it can't hold us together, but rather is a formula for disorder and dissolution. And that won't be good for the rest of the world either. And it's also essential for confronting what is actually the greatest crisis facing humanity in the 21st century, the fraying of the life-sustaining properties of the planet. Climate change, rapid extinction of species, the destruction of the natural systems that make the one world we have habitable for humans. There's a reason I turn from covering ethnic conflict in the Balkans and elsewhere to being a globe-trotting correspondent covering environmental issues and the uh, rising threat of global warming for more than a decade. But I've largely returned to those themes I started at and covered in the Balkans. The battle over historical memory, the fights over national identities, stories of belonging and othering, the use of very big lies to convince people that doing great evil is in fact furthering good, democracy and its discontents, and that for a reason as well. Because the economy may be a subset of the environment, but environmental justice is a subset of having a liberal democracy. An illiberal society, by definition, doesn't value the rights of the other. An ethno-nationalist society, by definition, cares only about the dominant group's interests in subjugating those denied membership in this master group. And authoritarian and autocratic regimes generally have terrible environmental policies, being unresponsive to the plight of those at the bottom who suffer first and most as ecological systems come apart. Yes, China's system can roll out electric cars and solar farms at a fast clip, but only after deadly smog and crippling droughts and uncontainable floods have already put the stability of the regime at risk. But most every other autocracy and dictatorship in the world, from the Soviet Union to contemporary Russia, Mugabe Zimbabwe to Bolsonaro's Brazil, have disastrous environmental track records. So, for the sake of democracy and the environment, 
we need to rediscover, reinvigorate, and adapt our lost civic national narrative story for 21st century life, and finally put the ethno-national one in the trash bin of history. This is the work going forward. I'm doing at Nationhood Lab, a project I'm running at the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy in Newport, Rhode Island, which I'm happy to share with any of you when we're offline, so to speak. And with that, I thank you all for your time, for the work you do, and for your interest in all of this. Good night. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Colin Woodard. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.